Well, it's a great privilege to be here at St. Philip's. Thank you very much for the welcome, uh, not just from the clergy, but from all the people I've met. It's um, wonderful to be here and wonderful to see your beautiful city. I come from the beautiful city of Oxford in uh, the UK, and it's amazing how quickly students who go there don't even notice the beauty of the buildings. Whenever I'm walking through the center of Oxford with a student, I will often say to them, don't take this for granted. And uh, I hope you don't take your amazing city for granted. It's very special indeed. I was sitting in one of my favorite spots in Oxford a little, little while ago. It's a coffee shop in the covered market. And as I went to leave, I went through one of the gates and, well, I was about to, and there was a security guard and it was locked. And he said, uh, no, there's only one way out. And I said, why, why is it locked? And he said, there's someone coming. Anyway, I went to the one exit and there was a reception line with the mayor and the chancellor of the university and the leader of the city council. It was a friend of mine. And I said, Bob, what's happening? He said, Charles and Camilla are coming. Prince Charles at the time, now of course the king. He said, if you just stay there, you'll see them. So I stood by the entrance, there were one or two others there, and within a minute or two, round the corner came this eager man, and he came straight towards me. He assumed I was part of a welcoming delegation from the market, that I was a market stallholder, and he said to me, so do you run a stall? I said, no sir, I'm a vicar. He said, you don't look like one. <laughs> I said, no, sir, I'm in heavy disguise today. <laughs> and he said, you coping? I said, yes, yes, sir, I'm coping. Does anybody come? And I said, yes, many come. And then he went on to the next person. And what a privilege it was to meet the man who is now my king. But I hope you realize that every time you come on a Sunday, we're coming to meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And insofar as I faithfully preach what is before us in the passage from the book of Hebrews, we are hearing the words of the King. That's a privilege. So let me begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're looking at that first reading from the, the book of Hebrews. It sounds like it should belong in the Old Testament with a name like Hebrews. It's actually a New Testament book, and it's not a straightforward book. Maybe as you heard the reading read, you might have found it hard to engage with what is there. Here is a book that was written to Jewish converts who began to follow the Lord Jesus, and it engages in quite some detail with Jewish ritual religious practices, which are alien to us. We might think, what's this doing in the Bible? What's it got to do with us? I've recently finished a series of sermons on the book of Hebrews, and by the end, I began to think this is the most important book in the Bible. I feel that at the end of every series. And so I want to share with you the, the essential message of the book of Hebrews, and I've chosen this particular passage because it's the hinge passage. 
The beginning of chapter 10 basically summarizes all that's gone before in the first nine chapters, and then towards the end of our section, it trails what is about to happen as these great truths of chapters 1 to 9 are then applied in practice. So we're getting a summary of the whole book as we look at chapter 10, and I'm going to do it in three words. Here is Hebrews in three words. The Christian faith, I think, in three words. Word number one, persecution. It's not actually in this particular passage, that word, but it does come at the end of the chapter where the writer reminds them that they began the Christian life really well in the former days despite great persecution. Some of them were even imprisoned for their Christian faith. The situation was this. If you imagine the Sabbath, there they were living in a Jewish community, we don't know quite where, but undoubtedly, on the Sabbath day, the whole community would leave their houses and would go together, match them on the main street, heading towards the synagogue, where they'd all go, and in their minds at least, as they went to the synagogue, they're looking to the temple in Jerusalem, the focal point of their faith, where symbolically at least, God himself dwelt. That's what they were doing, Sabbath by Sabbath. But then some of them began to realize that Jesus was the Messiah, the divine Son of God, and that what He'd come to do fulfilled all that was modeled in that temple to which they had been looking. And all those rituals now were redundant because the reality, not the shadow, had come. So they stopped going to the synagogue and stopped looking to the temple, and instead they turned around and went in the completely the opposite direction against the tide just a few of them. And then they went off the main road, down a back street, very likely, and probably into a back room down the back street where a few of them met to worship Jesus. Looked so unimpressive. And as far as the rest of their community was concerned, they were eccentric. You can imagine the embarrassment of mother when the young boy begins to stop going to the synagogue and goes to that back street. What are you doing? Why can't you be like everyone else? It's bringing shame on the family. Granny can't go out anymore because the word has got out. You're eccentric. But worse than that, you're a heretic because Christians worshipped Jesus as God, and the Jews, of course, were passionately monotheistic, and they couldn't understand how this wasn't the worship of two gods. It's heresy, and dangerous heresy, because in the Roman Empire, the Jews were a permitted religion, so they didn't persecute Jews. But now that Christians were no longer going to the synagogue and were worshipping Jesus in their own back rooms, that looked like a different religion, and so Christians therefore opened themselves up to the possibility of persecution. And the writer said, despite all that, you began really well. You rejoice despite the persecution. But this is a few years on, it seems, and some of them were getting tired about relentlessly going against the tide. The pressure was becoming too much. 
And so we read at the end of our passage that some had stopped meeting together. It wasn't that they were bored or they were playing golf. It was that it was a cost. And so instead of going against the tide, they began to join the crowd again and went back to the synagogue. They were giving up. You might think, Vaughan, this is a fascinating history lesson. But there are none of us here, probably, or if so, very few, who've come to Jesus from a Jewish background. So what's it got to do with us? Well, this is the Christian life. And the world is looking at other temples. The temple of materialism, perhaps or of hedonism, or selfism, the idea that you've got to blaze your own trail through life, define who you are, live as you want, and not let any God or moral system cramp your style. And so increasingly, those who worship Jesus and take him seriously in the whole of life, not just church on a Sunday, we'll find that they're going against the tide. And in our mere Anglicanism conference, we've been thinking about the reality that that is increasingly the sense, very much in my culture. Less so, I think, for you here. But you know that it's becoming more and more a pressure. I don't think we can talk about persecution, but pressure certainly and an increasing realization that following Jesus, we're called to go against the tide, and as it were, down a back street that doesn't look very impressive, and that some people don't approve of. And the result is some of our young people are saying, no, I don't want to do this anymore, and just join the crowd. And others are tempted of any age, including no doubt some here, of giving up, or at least compromising. And so... The challenge of the book of Hebrews is a challenge for us too. Persecution or pressure and therefore the temptation either to give up altogether or to modify our faith so that it fits in with the gods of this current world. Persecution. Second word, perfection. Perfection. It's a word that appears frequently in the book of Hebrews. Essentially, the message of the book is those of you who are thinking of adapting your faith so it fits in with the culture or giving up on your faith altogether must be mad if you realize how amazing what you have in Jesus is. It doesn't look very impressive to the world necessarily. Less impressive than the temple. But it's amazing because what you have in Christ is better by far than what you had before. The word better comes 13 times in the book. And perfection is a key theme. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, the law referring to the old covenant, all that was represented by that temple, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Perfect. It can't do it. I'm not actually talking at this point about making people sinless, 
It's talking about qualifying people to enter the presence of God. And there, God, in his presence, was focused on the temple, and you'd think that's amazing. God is with us. But although the reality is the temple in Jerusalem both proclaim the nearness of God and the distance of God. If you were actually in Jerusalem and you started walking towards this magnificent building, you'd very soon hit a series of no-entry signs. The first would be no Gentiles, and that's almost all of us. We wouldn't be able to get any closer. Those of Jewish ethnicity, they could keep moving forward, and then there'd be another big sign, and it would say, no women. And then another big sign, no laity, only Jewish priests. And then the biggest no-entry sign of all, just before the Holy of Holies, where symbolically God's presence was focused, a massive great curtain which separated everyone from the presence of God. Only one man could go in there just once a year on the Day of Atonement, the great high priest. But no one else. No entry. It proclaims the truth that God is a holy God and we are sinful people and the two can't mingle. Don't get too close. So the old covenant could not deliver perfection. It could, couldn't qualify us for intimacy and relationship with God. But now Christ has come, says the writer, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And in him has come perfection. So the writer of the Hebrews says, he's the perfect priest. Those priests who were offering sacrifices in the temple, they were sinful themselves. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could offer them for anyone else. But Jesus uniquely was perfectly righteous, didn't need to offer a sacrifice for any sin he'd committed. He committed no sin. The perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice. In the temple, the sacrifices were of animals, Human beings, as they approached God, deserved to die, and God graciously allowed them to sacrifice an animal as a substitute in their place. But of course, no animal is an adequate substitute for a human being. This was a picture. And all those sacrifices offered day after day after day were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ offered on the cross. The sacrifice of himself, as he took upon himself the penalty that we human beings deserve for our sin. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And again, it's picture language. Think of what's going on in the temple. There are these priests offering sacrifices day after day. They're standing. Why are they standing? Because the job hasn't been done yet. Maybe you're working hard in the yard or in the kitchen, and you're standing doing the job, and you're looking forward to finishing the job, and when you finish the job, then you can sit down 
and enjoy a nice cup of tea. But until you finish the job, you've got to stay standing. The point is those priests are standing because the job has never been done. They, They don't deal with the problem of sin. But when Jesus Christ had finished offering his sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's no more need of any more sacrifice. He offered the perfect sacrifice of himself, made once for all upon the cross. The perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice, resulting in perfect cleansing. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being being sanctified. He's qualified all those who are trusting in his death to enter the very presence of God, not in the temple in Jerusalem, but intimacy with God in heaven. And we can enjoy communion with him here on earth and look forward to the certainty of being with him forever in the new creation. Perfect cleansing. Have you begun to understand the wonder of that reality? One young man wanted to speak to me. There was a terrible sin on his conscience, and he wanted to talk about it, and I said I'd be delighted to meet with him. He came into my study, and I said, "Um, tell me what you want to tell me. And he couldn't speak. He was so ashamed, he couldn't say it. So I said, would it help if you wrote it down? And the tears, he he said it would. So I got him a pen and a bit of paper and he wrote down this sin. He was crying. I said, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for sins? Yes, he did. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Yes, he did. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for this sin? Yes, he did. I happened to have a match nearby. And I lit the bit of paper. And as it was burning, I quoted the scriptures. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, purifies us from all unrighteousness. It's been dealt with. Maybe that's a message you particularly need to hear. Maybe for the first time, and you somehow thought that There's no way you could be a friend of God, not not after you've done that or all those things that you do. And maybe for the first time you need to understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. So if you trust in him, you can be sure that you're forgiven, you're qualified to be his friend. Others of you, you know that well, you've known it for years. And yet you still feel weighed down, maybe by a particular sin, or just a general sense of wrongdoing, and you don't really delight in the intimacy you can have with God. And I want to say to you again, marvel at the wonder of the, God, of the gospel of Christ. A perfect priest has offered a perfect sacrifice, delivering perfect cleansing that achieves a perfect access. Verse 19 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, unthinkable for a Jew to have confidence to enter the holy of holies, 
But in Christ, we can have confidence not to enter a pattern or copy on earth, but to enter even heaven itself, not because of our righteousness, but because of the blood of Jesus who died for us. Praise God. So persecution, or maybe pressure, making us wonder, do I really want this Christian life to go against the flow? Or do I want to keep going? It's weighing me down. It's hard. I feel the pressure. I just want to compromise and go with the flow. And you feel that pressure right now. If you don't, you will very soon. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, listen, don't you realize how amazing the gospel is? What you have is perfection in Christ. You can call him your friend. It's so wonderful, and it guarantees an eternity with him. Any small suffering we might have for him now is nothing compared to the wonders of what we enjoy in this life and what we can look forward to in the next life. And so, pressure, persecution, but perfection should lead to Third word, perseverance. Keep going. And that's the message of the whole of Hebrews. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What do you need to hear this morning? For some, perhaps, it is actually the challenge for the first time to go against the flow. For us, there's not a great cost in this society, I suspect, to go to church on a Sunday. Lots of people are doing that. But for us, in some other way, it'll be much more costly to go against the flow. Maybe in our social group, not to do everything that they're doing. At school, perhaps. Or in our social group of friends. Maybe in the workplace, not just going with the flow, but saying, actually, I can't do that. That's a culture I can't go along with. Whatever the challenge is for us, what will help us to persevere in the persecution, wrong word, I think, but for us, the pressure, is the perfection we have in Christ. Marvel at the gospel. And then, my dear brothers and sisters, persevere. Keep going against the flow for the glory of God. Amen.